Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we'll continue to examine efforts to unionize, to unionize specific affiliate stores and shops here in the Atlanta area. Now, yesterday we told you about the Apple Store located at Cumberland Mall. Well, today, Starbucks. Now, dozens of Starbucks already throughout the nation have unionized, and hundreds more are scheduled to take a vote. Could an Atlanta Starbucks be next? Plus, Insay Ufalt, the CEO of the New Georgia Project and its affiliate New Georgia Project Action Fund, is stepping down from her post. We'll have a conversation with her about voting concerns. All that's ahead, but first this, Georgia Democrats are making a bid to be one of the early presidential primary states in 2024. The state Democratic Party tells WABE's Sam Greenglass it has submitted a letter of intent to the Democratic National Committee. Can Georgia move any closer to the center of the political universe? The answer might be yes. Democrats want to shake up their all-important early nominating states. For decades, both parties have kicked off their presidential nominating process in Iowa. But the 2020 Iowa caucuses were chaotic, and there's a growing view that the mostly rural white state doesn't represent most Democratic voters. Georgia fits many of the qualities the National Party is looking for a state with battleground status, a diverse electorate, and a primary, not caucuses. Still, Georgia's vast geography and expensive Atlanta media market could be sticking points. States have until June 3rd to submit formal bids. Democrats will finalize the dates this summer. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. In other news, $1.1 billion, that's how much has been raised so far or generated this so far this fiscal year for state-funded education programs through the Georgia Lottery Corporation. Now, of course, the money goes towards Georgia's public pre-kindergarten programs and the HOPE Scholarship. And, of course, these provide financial aid for students at state colleges and technical schools. Also, according to the lottery, $24.9 billion has been generated for the program since the lottery began in the early 90s. And officials say the lottery made more than $357 million in profits during the third quarter of this fiscal year, which helped push the yearly total over a billion dollars. The Atlanta-based Latin American Association is one of 20 community organizations set to receive grants to improve digital literacy in Latino communities. As Christopher Austin reports, the initiative is a partnership between the Hispanic Federation and the NBC Universal Telemundo. The selected nonprofit organizations are set to receive a total of $635,000 in grants to reduce the digital divide. Latinos make up 14% of the workforce, but represent 35% of workers with no digital training, according to the U.S. Department of Education. 
grant recipients will launch digital career centers to offer both online and in-person computer classes, as well as employment opportunities. As part of the initiative, the Hispanic Federation will also develop a Latino Center of Digital Skills Excellence. The long-term bilingual center will develop best practices in digital skills training for nonprofits providing workforce development. According to the Aspen Institute, by 2030, at least two-thirds of jobs will require some level of digital skills. Christopher Alston, WABE News. And finally, if you're looking for a nice brunch to take mom this Mother's Day, well, the fine folks over at AtlantaOnTheCheap.com, that's a real website, they have some suggestions, especially if the funds are a little tight, but hey, it is for mom. Now, we were going to mention some of the recommendations, but I didn't want to get an email from y'all talking about it coming you mentioned my favorite place. So, again, just head over to AtlantaOnTheCheap.com, and they have some recommendations for you all. That's all I'm saying. Anyway... Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, and especially those celebrating their first Mother's Day. This is Closer Look. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. In case you don't know, early voting for Georgia's primary election is underway. Now, according to the Secretary of State's office, uh, there were a record-breaking turnout on the first day. Actually, on Monday, more than 27,000 Georgians cast in-person ballots. Now, according to the Secretary of State's office, that's roughly three times the number of folks who voted in the first day of the 2018 primary election and nearly double the amount of people who voted in the June 2020 primary. Now, this is the first time voters statewide are heading to the polls under the new election laws that affect early voting and absentee ballot procedures. And also this, there's some big changes coming to one of the largest nonprofit, nonpartisan civic engagement organizations in the state, too. You've probably heard of them. Nse Ufant is the CEO of the New Georgia Project and its affiliate, New Georgia Project Action Fund. Well, she's stepping down from her post. She joins me now to talk about the current election season and why she is choosing to take another chapter in life, as we all do. Nse, welcome to the program. Hey, Rose. How are you, friend? We all hanging in here, right? Still got the pandemic, so... <laughs> ah, yes. One foot in front of the other. Let me ask you this, because I don't think I've ever asked you this as I was uh, preparing for this. When folks ask you, what is the difference between voter integrity, when we hear that from certain groups and individuals, versus voter suppression? Well, um, I mean, voter integrity is a made-up phrase that the current version of the GOP likes to traffic in to justify their voter suppression tactics, like cutting over 100 days from early voting and absentee balloting, like banning drop boxes from being outside of polling locations and putting them inside buildings that close at five as opposed to the 24-hour access that we enjoyed in 2020. Um, So that's the difference. One is a lie Mm -hmm. that is used to justify bad behavior and to justify voter suppression. And one is a very real thing that we are able to document, demonstrate, and show receipts for. For our listeners who may not be familiar with the New Georgia Project, and, and you, they've heard you not only on this program, not only on WABE, but seeing you across so many other media outlets here, uh, give them a little bit of insight about the history and the mission of this organization. 
Yeah. So in 2013, leader uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, minority leader in the Georgia State Legislature, um, uh, saw that, you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act was coming online and that the adoption rates were abysmal in rural parts of the state, particularly in Georgia's rural black belt. And because people were dying because of Republican bad behavior and their refusal to expand Medicaid, as we know, the Affordable Care Act is a 90% match. Uh, we wanted to get people health care. Um, they were working, registering people. It was difficult, difficult conversations to have and recognizing clearly and quickly that we needed to build power in the state legislature. We needed to elect accountable leaders. And one of the challenges to that was the fact that there were over 1 million people of color, black and brown folks all over the state of Georgia um, who were eligible to vote and unregistered. And so uh, from her launch in 2013, her frustration to trying to get people registered to vote um, when we haven't expanded Medicare, mm -hmm. I mean, registered for healthcare when we didn't expand Medicare to switching the focus to voter registration. Um, and we have hit the halfway mark. Uh, we've registered over 600,000 young people and people of color in all 159 of Georgia's counties. When folks listen to you all talk, and and you, you, but you are, and if you want to clear this up and correct me if I'm wrong, you are. You said you are nonpartisan, correct? New Georgia Project is nonpartisan, and Say Abasi Ufat is not. Do you make that distinction? It's important. I do not give up my First Amendment rights um, just because I run the largest independent political organization in the state of Georgia and just because we're doing really, really good work. I am a citizen. I've earned that right um, and I exercise it regularly. Do you all have any GOP or conservative leaning alliances or Absolutely. allies? Who are they? Absolutely. Uh, they're individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that what I'm not going to do is obsess over bipartisanship and collegiality because I'm being told that that is some, some, somehow a virtue in and of itself. We're trying to win real things for Georgians. The minimum wage in Georgia is $5.15. So when there was an opportunity to, uh, you know, working with low wage workers, um, there are some right leaning uh, labor leaders mm -hmm. uh, that also see how we are all being hurt by having this abysmal minimum wage in the state of Georgia. So it depends, but we are engaged in principled campaigns and principled advocacy, and we are willing to work with anybody who is rocking with us and our priorities. When you say principled campaign, take that further for our listener who says, well, okay, give me a definition or give me this, what you would identify as a principled campaign. Yeah, I think that um, right now uh, our economic justice campaign is called Nah, We Want 20. Right. And so part of it is an evolution of the fight for 15 mm -hmm. that people have been depressing wages in Georgia for so long. Again, the Republicans in the state refuse to engage seriously. You can't take care of people. You can't take care of a family. <laughs> on $5.15. And there are still people in the state, um, employers in the state who pay it. Mm -hmm. So we're pushing for $22, even though it's out of step with mainstream Democrats, it's out of step with mainstream conversations, but it's absolutely where inflation, it's absolutely where wages should be at a minimum in Georgia. Everybody's not with us on that, um, but it is a principle that we're standing 10 toes down on. Matter of fact, last this week and even last week, we've been talking about efforts to unionize certain specific shops here in Georgia. We talked yesterday about an Apple store. After this conversation, a little bit later in the program, we're going to talk about a Starbucks here. I, get, I probably know the answer to this, but what are your thoughts on these, these workers, you, you know, mobilizing to become union shops? 
I'm so excited by it. Like, I can't even tell you how encouraged I am by this. Um, all labor has value, A. B, there are people who are literally here um, closest to the means of production, the ones who are responsible for running your organization, running your company. They should absolutely have a say in their working conditions. It is a lie uh, that unions, you know, control the bosses. That's just not how capital works. Uh, that's not how business works. Um, but I do think that worker power and again, being able to have a seat at the table, have a voice in your working conditions is actually important. And it acknowledges and gives dignity to the labor that people contribute mm -hmm. every day to making your business successful. I want to go back to voting for a moment, because as you know, there are several federal lawsuits here, um, not only against Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, but the State Elections Board. Now, depending on which legal expert you ask, there are many that say these federal election lawsuits uh, face a pretty tough road here, particularly after what happened with the the, high, the nation's high court last year, um, placing it what some say is a significantly higher burden on proving discrimination, particularly under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. How do you see this? Optim any optimism here, regardless if there are just eight or however many lawsuits there are? I'm optimistic because I believe in us. I believe in people. I believe that the arc of the moral university is a um, moral universe is long, but that it bends towards justice. And I believe that we are all out here doing the work to bend the arc. Um, I also believe that, you know, Nancy Abudu um, is currently up for confirmation for the 11th Circuit. That's the federal appeals court. That's mm -hmm. Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, right on the heels of uh, Justice Brown Jackson. And so while this Supreme Court is hell bent on uh, getting rid of the rights that Americans enjoy, I see a pipeline. I see people coming for everything that this country owes us and everything that they want for themselves and the families and the people that they love. And I'm encouraged by that. This is the first statewide election under after Georgia's new election law which was passed. What concerns do, do you all still have, according to the Secretary of State's office? We want to be fair here. Uh, so far, no major issues have been at least made public, if any. What concerns do you all still have, though, regarding between now and obviously in November? Um, Senate Bill 202, Georgia's trash uh, anti-voting bill, um, in so many ways. It is literally 50 different changes to Georgia's voting laws. And so it's going to take some time mm -hmm. to see all of the ways in which these 50 cuts try to make our democracy bleed out. Um, and so that is what we're paying deep attention to. We have poll monitors and volunteers and lawyers all across the state. Um, there are five new crimes. Two of them are felonies um, that have come up because of Senate Bill 202. Um, and so training up an entire generation of lawyers um, who have expertise at the intersection of voting rights law and criminal defense law mm -hmm. um, is going to be super important because guess what? We haven't had one. There aren't a thousand lawyers in Georgia uh, that can defend you against voting crimes. Um, and so this is a new terrain for us. And so I'm deeply concerned because again, there are a minimum of 50 changes mm -hmm. uh, to our laws and we're going to have to keep an eye on all of them. Let's shift for a moment and talk about you. How would you assess in terms of your leadership with this organization, you know, the challenges, your own self-assessment here? Um, I think that, um, I think I did an extraordinary job. <laughs> I mean, I obviously have some critiques of myself and things that I wish I would have done and been able to get accomplished, like what? but 
Um, I, I would have loved to have built out more of a Georgia donor base um, that I spend a lot of time on the road spreading the gospel, the good news about the progressive uh, policy and political opportunities in the South. And part of it is because I am challenged by high net worth individuals in Georgia. I mean, I'm told there's 200,000 millionaires in Georgia. Um, How many? I'm told that there are 200,000 millionaires in Georgia, in the state of Georgia. 200,000. And what is that? And, and how does that affect you again? I just want to be clear. That they're not in, they're not investing in the New Georgia Project. They're not investing in this kind of community organizing that the bulk of our donors still are from places outside of Georgia. And I would have liked to have leaned in and done more work to have Georgians. Um, and like they rock with us. They run our campaigns. They share our text messages. They like our stuff on social media. They are all in for the work that we do. I think the last step is to get Georgians to invest resources in building this kind of independent political infrastructure and maintaining it. Then what do you think you could have done differently then under your leadership? Um, I think that I could have, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I could have like gone out to more fancy people parties. <laughs> I could have gone to more like Black Hollywood studio events, like trying to source out new Georgians and folks who are in the entertainment and film industry. Um, I think that like doing more power mapping about old money in mm -hmm. Atlanta, like old progressive money um, could have been super helpful. Uh, but yeah, I, that is, if I had a critique about my tenure, um, that would be it. Who then would you or do you turn to in terms of when you need a, a pick me up or someone that you need to bounce an idea off of? Or is there someone in your camp that says, now, you know, and say you could have, I want to talk to you about this interview you just did with Rose Scott. Listen, Who's, who are those all, folks that, that tell you the truth? Accountability is not an issue over here. People love to tell me when they think that I am out of pocket. <laughs> I want to be super clear. Um, I mean, I think that's the beauty and the joy of doing this kind of work in Atlanta, you know, the cradle of the civil rights. You can't shake a stick without hitting somebody that claimed they marched with King. And they have, <laughs> and they all have- Or oh, they went to school with the kids. <laughs> right, 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 right. And they all have opinions about how we, what we do and how we're doing uh -huh. it. Um, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. I'm an Atlanta public school graduate. Georgia Tech graduate. Uh, and so I'm really fortunate to have like my high school friends, my college homies. Um, some of my friends from law school have moved to Atlanta. Um, I'm a part of a, a sorority and people who like love me and hold me down. Um, there are my staff, like I've been really intentional about building out our senior leadership. Um, and so there are, I mean, from our CFO to our COO, like, our team is strong and they're all professionals. They all are subject matter experts and they all make me better. So one might say, look, you're at the quote peak of your tenure as a leader of this pro of the new Georgia project. So why, why now? Why are you stepping down now? Um, because I, I think it's time. I feel like NGP is a good idea whose time has come. Um, and people will continue to hear me say that because it's true. Um, I think that part of Stacy and Lauren, um, Lauren and Mai's original vision was to build out an entire generation, a new generation of operatives and, and experts, um, organizers and folks who can do this work as opposed to having to hire consultants and people from outside of the state who don't know us and who frankly don't love us. Um, and so 
We've Why you say that? that? Don't love you. Why you say that? Don't love y'all. Uh, because there have been times, um, I, I think a, a lot of political consultants, particularly uh, media buyers, uh, but actually I'm not going to single media buyers out. That's not fair. Uh, but there are a lot of political consultants and people who do work in this field who um, see it as a for-profit venture. And so I, the, where and how you enter into electoral politics uh, matters to me. And so I am coming here because I have a vision for myself and for my family for Georgia that I want to fight for. And we do that at the ballot box as well as you know in between elections and then there's some people who are like mm, one billion dollars was raised and spent in the nine weeks of mm-hmm. the runoff between Ossoff and runoff yeah i want my cut i want my cut hmm. and well, there are a lot of people who had that who had that attitude so let me ask you this then you think there's some unique approaches circumstances as it relates to voting in the south that probably folks on the outside just still don't get when they want to come in and tell you how to do it and what you should do and who you should be talking to and who you should mobilize and all that? Yeah, no, I think Georgia is you super unique i think that um when you think about the fact that you know we're going to be the first state in the deep south with a white minority so like what does that mean for the multiracial multi-ethnic future of georgia and the politics of it and there are people who just i don't understand so they come with these same old tired talking points these same old tired strategies um and because they are you know connected in dc connected on the coast new york la where money they're connected to resources then that somehow affords them a credibility even though they are offering and selling losing strategies at a premium that is detrimental to the work you feel that you all and the mission that you all are trying to do Absolutely. And oftentimes it is deeply frustrating because on the surface, they look like they're doing the things. They look like they are selling solutions that are actually designed for us to win and they are not. Um, and so being able to work from, with people from the South and being able to work with people who organize with young youth and Black folks actually matters. Um, being able to hire consultants who don't whisper Black uh, <laughs> is actually really important. People who aren't afraid uh, to say that uh, the in America's newest swing state, there are a few swing counties and a swing voter block, and it is black voters. It is mm-hmm. not the mythical moderate white man who you want to bring back to the Democratic Party. And so being able to work and build power with folks uh, and run and win campaigns with folks who understand that, uh, like that's a part of our strategy to win. Is also there's a is there also a disconnection between progressives and perhaps a younger generation of activists and then still we have some of the quote now I'm not going to put you in the quote OG status because I don't know where you want to be but there is that there's these still the OGs there's like the middle and there's like the youngins you know I like uh uh OG in training, deputy okay. OG. Because yeah. <laughs> you, you, you're not up there. You, you see, you know, the Ambassador Youngs and the Shirley Franklins and some of those uh, no. folks, they're the, they're the OGs, so to speak. Right. And heroes. And heroes, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this uh, disconnect because I've, I've talked to I've talked to all three groups and there is a disconnection here. And it's on both sides of, of the political parties here. But for you, for this conversation, how do you, yeah. how do you suggest everyone trying to get on the same page to, 
you know, whatever your mission is going to be that you all work together. But there's a disconnection there. You know that. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you this, the way that we train our organizers is that they have twice as many ears as they do mouths. And so our number one priority and our responsibility when we're on the doors, when we're on the phone, when we're in text messages is to listen to people. And so what often happens is that the older generation, because they are in these fights, because they are in these rooms, um, they, they have a worldview, they have a perspective, and they have very firm ideas about what it takes to win. And then there are folks who are outside of these rooms who are coming up, who have an analysis, who see what's happening in the world around us. Um, and because they're outside of the rooms, they are trying to kick the door down. Um, I think that youth uh, that, uh, is afforded sort of a boldness and a brazenness um, that polite people and established people don't always allow themselves to lean into. Um, and so like the sharpness and the, and the edginess of the critique, the principled stances that they take don't always align. Um, again, once you have reached a certain status, but as, if we keep talking, that's how we win. So what role do you play in that? Cause it sounds like you're kind of like in the middle. I mean, basically, in so middle in terms of age, but also middle in terms of, I think, my status uh, amongst the sort of movement generations, um, but also just because of my personality and like just I feel like I'm naturally uh, like prone to diplomacy um, and trying to build a bigger tent like that is my not my natural. So when state, folks are arguing, they say, I'm gonna call and say, see what she say. <laughs> Right, right, all right. And and here's the thing. And I'm the person like, listen, we need to get in a room. We need to get in a room because, and let me, I love that you brought this up because like I said, the folks who were voting for the first time this year are, mm -hmm. were born in 2004, right? And so they have a completely different worldview, right? Like people who were born in 2004, like will learn about, you know, the challenges within the Democratic Party and like how folks have had to make concessions, mm -hmm. uh, voting for people who are hostile to you and your humanity, but you know, to get it done expediently, these folks are like, nah, we want student loan debt forgiveness today. It is a racial justice issue, a gender justice issue, and an economic justice issue, and we're not going to accept anything less. Just made me feel old. I never <laughs> looked at it like that. For some who are voting for the first time, they were born in 2004. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate that. As Listen, we, that's what I'm here for. You're welcome. <laughs> as we wrap up, what's next for you? What can you share? Uh, I mean, I, I am open to ideas. I think that um, I want to write a book. Uh, I feel like of course is. you do. <laughs> I mean, I've all, we've all been inspired by Lita Abrams. I mean, I don't think I'm going to be able to pump out six books, uh, but I can get y'all one uh, <laughs> that tells a beautiful story about what we are building and what's been built in Georgia. Um, and so I'm working on that in the process um, and also just seeking opportunities, I think, to grow our work, the demand for the sort of new Georgia project sauce if I can call it that, uh, have, have only grown. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, in Louisiana, Mississippi, Texas, with similarly situated organizations, um, helping to sort of build up their infrastructure and get them in fighting shape. And I mean, I see a world where that could be, I could build that out, but right now um, I want right. to take a nap. I want to take a nap. <laughs> but you're going to take a nap. <laughs> right. Nse Unfont, the CEO of the New Georgia Project and its affiliate New Georgia Project Action Fund. We talk about her decision to step down, but also talking about how far the organization has come, what challenges still exist, and some achievements. And say thank you so much for taking the time always to be a part of our conversation. We, uh, we're going to have you back one more time before you say goodbye. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Good to see you. Have a good week.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. The Census Bureau's role in surveying every person in the U.S. is followed by what we call another once-in-a-decade tradition, the so-called 72-year rule, which publicizes census records 72 years after they were collected, including names and addresses. Now, that brings us back to the 1950s with those records published earlier this month by the Census Bureau. You may be saying, well, why is this important? And we're about to have that conversation. Tammy Ozier is the president of the Afro-American Historical and Geological Society's Metro Atlanta chapter. Say that 18 times. She joins me now to talk about the 1950 census records and what you could find there. Welcome, Tammy. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. I am good. We might so be cousins. To talk about that. We might be. You look, look alike. Yeah, you, I'm like, is that my cousin? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, when you start opening up them records from the <laughs> I know. You'd be amazed. <laughs> Let's talk about that because perhaps a listener is saying, well, what is the purpose? You know, why would someone want to dig back into the, the census of the 1950s? What would you tell them, Tammy? Yeah, I think the first thing is really about something that's fun. Really, you may be able to see people for the first time they are enumerated that you may know that are no longer here. Mm -hmm. You know, your parents, you know, for me, my parents, grandparents, or people I didn't know, like my great grandparents are actually um, on the census. So that's one of the, the first things. But, but obviously a lot of us, um, I wanna say um, family history um, historians, let me just put it that way, mm -hmm. are really anxious to, to get to know um, what the 1950 census really show uh, um, about where we were. Now, kind of the 1950, just kind of think about the timeline. It was really, um, really the start of the um, of the of, of the modern day civil rights movement, mm -hmm. right? So now you can kind of see um, maybe where people were living. It's also um, a point where it is the highlight of migration of African Americans from the South. Mm -hmm. So really it's within that same period. Um, World War II um, had just ended about five years um, previous to this time period. So again, you're, you're starting to see what was the condition because it talks about this 1950 census talks about and gives information. If you're 14 years or older, did you work last week? Mm -hmm. um, was it full time? How many hours did you work? Um, it indicates if you're living on a farm, farm or not. Um, so just a lot of little tidbits that can really kind of get you into telling the story of your family. Now, let me ask you this. Have you been digging into that a little bit? I, 
I have. I do it every day. I was there when it first when it was released, and I just wanted to just get a feel for uh, my family. My family is originally from Louisiana, mm-hmm. and I, I I grew up in in California. So just imagine me as a young child living in Louisiana, kind of seeing that little area, and then now because I, I grew up in California, it's like I still want to know and and see those places. So and- the sense really give me that sense. And I plan to do it as well because our roots are, well, our roots here in North America, as far as we know, um, are in Natchez and Shaw, Mississippi. And okay. then when I did the African ancestry, it, it took me to Liberia. So I got folk over there too. So yeah. I'm trying to connect the dots between Liberia oh and Mississippi. So I'm sure somewhere in this census, but someone listening saying, okay, Tammy, this is great. Uh, how do I access these records? What shape? Are they in? How easy it for someone to navigate? Tell oh. them. Tell them how to get through this. Yeah. Okay. So there are two places. Well, there are three places. But um, I would first say you can go to familysearch.org. The um, the records are there, and the records are actually on ancestry.com. And I probably would say to go to ancestry.com initially because they also have what's called a, a numerator finder. So you can see the enumerating district that your family may have been to try to pinpoint um, where your family is. Now, um, um, one of the things about this particular census is that this is the first um, census that we have a computer generated um, Mm. index. So um, uh, um, Ancestry.com and Family Search have they are collaborating ancestry um use their computer magic um you know artificial intelligence and um, ocr to create their the initial um index so now what family search then has done or what they're doing they are asking um, for volunteers to actually go in and review this computer generated index to make sure that it's available for all of us wow um and, yeah, so it's actually, you know, this is the most records that that has been available thus far. Um, as you may know, the, the um, census are released every 72 years. And um, so the last one was um, 1940. Um, it took, took a while for us to get searchable um, indexes. So this one is actually, we're going to probably see everything indexed really in a, a relatively short amount of time. And it's because of this collaboration and because the public is helping. And so to be clear for our listeners, we're talking about the 1950. 1950. Did I say something else? Yeah. Well, no, I just want to be clear because I don't want folks say, well, I was trying to find somebody. We're like, well, we didn't tell you that because they'll blame me and I'll get an email. But yeah. so we're talking about this was the 1950 census that was taken. That's correct. 1950 was just released April 1st. You know, if listeners are also interested in just getting a sense of even if they can't find information, we hope they can about their their family. But and I've seen some of these records to look at what information they collected then and what information they collect now. That's quite fascinating when you think about it. Yeah. So, you know, this is the thing. If you are on a journey to try to build and tell the story of your family, this is a great way to get information, to feed information into your family. Right. So when we are doing um, family history or family genealogy, the first thing we want to do is 
um, kind of start with yourself. Where was I born? Mm-hmm. Who are my parents? Who are my siblings? And so now you can't, you start seeing um, um, what are your parents' name, your names, your grandparents' names. So you can actually translate or actually use the census to supplement information that you may not know. Maybe that's an aunt that died before you were born and you can go onto the census and say, oh, there's an aunt. I, I didn't know her name or I didn't know her real name. And it's a, her real name is enumerated. So this is a way for you to start connecting and building the stories of your family. And, you know, Tammy, for for not just, you know, folks of, of, of African descent, but for so many people in trying to discover you know, where their origins of their entire bloodline, um, you know, resides from in terms of around the world. You you can start here, starting here in, in the United States is such a big step. And for those who we know, who we, you know, there's a large percentage of us who we know are descendants of the enslaved in this nation. It is really, really helpful, really helpful. Absolutely. This is what I would say here, you know, and, and you know what I, when I'm talking to people who are of African descent, when I'm, when they want to start genealogy, I want to, I want to first give them something to think about before they get started. Now, the thing I would say is that standard genealogy methodology applies to African-Americans. We are no different. We follow the rules, so, mm-hmm. so to speak. The other thing I would say is that you can find records for African-Americans. For some reason, we have the belief that there are no records that we're in or that, oh, well, we were enslaved. First of all, all of us weren't enslaved, but again, um, we there are records that you can find information about us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will be the, uh, the next thing. The other thing I would say is that there's a lot of records online. Everything is not online. Mm-hmm. You have to go local. Mm-hmm. Where was your family? What city were they in? What was the parish or what was the county? And you have to research locally. And the other thing for African-Americans specifically, there are some harsh facts a lot of times related to our history that you want to make sure that you're taking those breaks you need to to be able to deal Mm -hmm. with some of the information that you uncover. And especially especially Mm -hmm. if you are able to locate records and you realize that a great, great, great was an enslaved person and they were labeled as property. Let's be really clear about that. That is actually documented in a lot of the archives. Mm-hmm. Got to be very, very clear about that. And that very, may be hard very, to take. Not maybe, hard. that's hard to take. It's hard to take. I have, um, I have four lines that I have traced to enslavement. And to find your your ancestors in those documents, it's not fun. Uh, you know, you're, you're not, it's good to find them just to say, to kind of see a part of them, but to see that they're being sold or they're being given as a gift and all of those things. That's why I'm saying you have to take middle mental breaks just to make sure you're dealing with that, that particular trauma, but it's there, it's there. And, and, um, but it's not, it's not always fun. And, or you might find out that you're related to, I don't know, Beyonce. Somebody. <laughs> that, um, hey. Beyonce, my cousin, six removed from my father's yeah. side. <laughs> See, her family is, her, her on her mother's side is from the same area that I'm from. So I, I oh, 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 so now you related to Beyonce. I'm just saying. 
saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> there may be a connection there. <laughs> you heard it here. Tammy Ozier says she related to, to Queen B. Oh, oh my God. It's, just... <laughs> it's on record hey. now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Before I let you go again for our listeners, you're suggesting that they go to the familysearch.org or yeah. the ancestry.com. Now, it is one or I know with ancestry.com there could be a fee with familysearch.org is there a fee as well? No, family familysearch.org is always free. So that that's the good thing about it. And on and actually for ancestry.com, a lot of the records actually are free mm-hmm. so so you um and and right now and i'm not sure i'm, I'm a subscriber so I, i'm not sure but i believe the, the the um the information is free right now for on ancestry for the for the 1950 census but definitely for family search it's always free and for folks right now since we're talking about that 1950 census perhaps they can start with particularly if you have a, a certain age group let's just say your generation x you probably want your your mother or your grand or, or grandparents, your mom or dad or grandparents' name, maiden name for the mom, correct? If if married, right. and then the the city or, or state, and then that's a good starting point. That's a that's a great starting point. Sometimes you don't know your mother's maiden name, unfortunately. So maybe just just um one one tip may be who were her siblings, who were her parents, at least their first name. So if you know the area, the city that they were living in, and you know the approximate um, location, then maybe you're just looking at first names to try to say, oh, this is my mother. Her last name is Brown. I didn't know that. Her mate name is Brown. And it's because you were able to say, it's my mother, it's her sister, it's her brother, and I know that this is my family. So that's one way to, to try to um, get down to the answer. And put in their real names on put in there big mama jackson because that ain't gonna show up because we all got we all got a big mama i know it unfortunately the sisters may have those nicknames all right big mama jackson yeah they may (laughs) big mama may actually be in the in the census record and it's a great family event the entire family can get in on this i I just love it tammy ozier is the president of the afro-american historical and genealogical society's metro atlanta chapter Thank you so much. Good information. A good family project. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. Or cousin Tammy. Yeah, cousin. (laughs) Bye. Thank you. Take care. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here in Georgia, Starbucks workers at the Howe Mill location here in Atlanta will be voting or voting to form a union. Now, ballots were sent out on April 22nd and will reportedly be counted May 20th. Now, I want to welcome in Paige Smith, shift supervisor at the, at that Starbucks lo- Howell Mill location to talk about this process. As you know, all this week and last week, we've been talking about efforts to form unions in specific sectors. Paige, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let me ask you this. How long have you worked for Starbucks? Um, I've worked at this particular location for just over a year, and um, I've been kind of in and out of the company um, at various licensed stores and stuff since 2017. Now, that first Starbucks to unionize was late last year in Buffalo. Was this a catalyst for you all to start thinking about, you know what, maybe we we need to talk about this as well? 
Absolutely. Um, it's definitely something conceptually that like I and a lot of the baristas that I work with personally, like we're aware of and everything. But then as soon as that first store won their election, despite all of the hardships that were imposed on them, we really did see it as, you know, this is, really is a possibility. We really could do this. One of the top reasons, Paige, you all see is becoming a union shop would be beneficial. Well, I think one of the biggest ones is the idea of protection against either benefits being revoked or against any kind of um, unfair treatment from management, and then also being able to negotiate for what we view as acceptable compensation, as opposed to letting corporate members who have never worked in a store mm -hmm. think that they can decide what that adequate compensation is. You know, earlier this week, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz, during that uh, shareholders meeting, he talked about the current union union movement here. And here's part of what he said. Sharing success through wages and benefits with our partners is among our core values and has been for 50 years. And our values are not and never have been the result of demands or interference from any outside entity. It's who we are, it's who we have been, and who we always will be. Compare any union contract in our sector to the constantly expanding list of wages and benefits we have provided our people for decades, and the union contract will not even come close to what Starbucks offers. Paige, what are your thoughts on what CEO Schultz had to say, that perhaps no one can offer its employees, its workers, the, the best options, benefits, incentives other than the corporation? Honestly, I think that those comments are particularly misleading, and I would even go so far as to say kind of fear-mongering to discourage other employees in stores where there may not already be discussions from having those discussions. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you can talk a big game about, you know, giving your partner stock options and health benefits and all of this stuff, but if people who work in your stores are still coming away feeling like they can't afford rent and yeah, I got a, I have stock in Starbucks, but I'm homeless because I can't afford to live anywhere. Like I just, the lived experience of myself and the partners I've worked with over my time at Starbucks does not reflect the optimism that Howard Schultz seems to have in regards to how the company treats their workers. You know, he also went on to say there will be raises and other worker initiatives such as student loan refinancing help and new profit sharing initiatives. But as you know, that is only going to be available for those Starbucks locations that are not unionized or even union organizing that's underway. They would not be eligible. How problematic is that in through your lens? So again, I think it's kind of a manipulation tactic in a sense, mm -hmm. because while yes, it is true that Starbucks can only unilaterally change benefits at stores that aren't unionized, they still have an obligation to come to bargaining tables in good faith and respond to demands and requests from the union. Mm -hmm. So if they really do follow through on these vague promised benefits, then all the union would have to do is say, hey, we see that you're doing this. We would like the same offer. Mm -hmm. And to not offer it after that request would be considered discrimination against unionized employees and would, in fact, be pretty illegal by the NLRB standards. Well, let's talk about that in terms of the standards, because throughout this process, I'm curious, what have you learned about organizing in the process to unionizing? 
what have I learned? Yeah, um, what, what's been a, yeah. your takeaway so far? Yeah, so I have learned a ton because I'm from New York State. So we learned a little bit about unions when I was like in my state history classes and stuff mm -hmm. in school. But it wasn't something that I had ever personally experienced or engaged with until we started looking into all of this stuff. So having the resources of Workers United and um, this like this very established union organization behind them, the Service Employees International Union, was really helpful for us whenever we had questions, whenever we wanted to like learn more about something. And we've always had really good access to the legal team as well. You know, mm -hmm. as soon as something came up or if like a poster was posted in our store that said something that was concerning, all we had to do was go to our lawyer or one of the Workers United people and say, hey, I'm not actually clear on this. Mm -hmm. Like maybe you can give me some clarification. And we always got really thoughtful, really specific answers from them. So I feel like at the end of the day, all of us have come away being a lot more specifically educated about the process. Paige, how many employees are at that Howell Mill, that Starbucks Howell Mill location, roughly? Full and part-time. So our voter list was 26 employees long. And mm -hmm. That's the approved voter list of all the people who are considered part-time, full-time, but they're hourly employees who are eligible to vote in our election. And so for those that were eligible to vote in the election, you, you already had the election and it will be counted uh, later this month. Is that correct? Um, we actually have mail-in ballots, so mail -in, okay. some people are still in the process of turning their ballots in. What has been, what can you share in terms of, has this caused any type of tension within your store, your location? Have you heard from other employees from other Starbucks that may have had some concerns or, or may have said to you, hey, you know, this is what we went through, sort of what's been the feedback? What can you share? Yeah, so one of the things that's been really helpful in the process is that, um, for example, I myself am in a Slack channel with union organizers with Workers United in the entire Southeast region. Mm -hmm. um, so if I have a specific incident that occurs or I have or I want feedback on like something that happened at work, I can talk to partners who are in the same general area as me who have plenty of experiences in their stores every day. And even if we want to, we have the ability to reach out to and talk to the Buffalo partners. Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, Casey Moore, I do frequently speak to because she works on the social media stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's really facilitated a lot of communication between different stores and different experiences. So we've all felt really prepared and supported. And anytime something does happen, we have people to go to to kind of talk about it, process it and figure out what our response or next move is. And Paige, just through your own assessment, what do you make of that there now are hundreds more Starbucks where they're, they're going to take a vote? You've had some who have already unionized. This is a movement here. You, one has, you have to admit that this, this is a movement that really is still not that long, not that old. Beginning with that first Starbucks in Buffalo, what do you make of this? Yeah, um, honestly, we are incredibly excited by it because a lot of us who, at least the partners who work at my store, are really interested in not just the specific benefit of unionizing our store, but like the the concept of bringing back the prevalence of and increasing the prevalence of union membership and what it can do for where we are as an economy and like as you know a working um, environment as a country and everything. So 
we're really hoping that this movement will not only make Starbucks a better place to work for the employees that work there, but also make potentially other industries that are adjacent to us better places to work. And in general, you know, bring back or increase in general a mm -hmm. sense of, you know, workers' rights, solidarity, and feeling compensated properly in the workplace. Yeah, we spoke to uh, we spoke about Apple yesterday uh, as in terms of the vote. What is the process? Is it a simple majority, 50% plus one? Uh, yeah, it is a simple majority, so 50% plus one. If it's a tie, unfortunately, it will not be a win. But as long as we get that simple majority, then we will have our union at Starbucks at Howell Mill. And Paige, are you bracing for if it, the vote doesn't go your way? Will you still continue? Absolutely. Um I'm pretty optimistic about our particular location, but I know that there are challenges still, and mm -hmm. I know that there are still things that can change going forward. And if the vote doesn't go through, then I have no plans to, st I personally have no plans to stop advancing this movement and helping other stores continue with what they're doing. I've met with people at all different stores across the city of Atlanta who are at various stages of talking about it and considering it and even if my store doesn't end up unionizing, I will still continue to be a resource to those partners who want to do it as well. Paige Smith, shift supervisor at the Starbucks Howell Mill location. Paige, thank you so much for taking the time. We'll have you back. We'll see what happens with that vote. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much for having me again. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who is also our engineer today, because Kevin Rinker is out riding a bike. We miss you, Kevin. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we're in a podcast, so subscribe wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1. WABE Atlanta. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.